the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome. Hello. Loyal listeners. This is not going to be a happy episode. It's interesting. We got some comments about how sad our last episode sounded. And last week we had some hope. <laughs> yeah. Not much hope left today. Anyway, um, just to remind you, last week we were looking forward or not looking forward to the EU referendum here in the United Kingdom. Uh, Since we spoke to you last time, the referendum has happened. Britain has voted to leave the EU. Um, It was close, but not, not as close as we thought. 52 to 48, roughly. Um... And the consequences are pretty much undefinable. Yes. A lot's happened, and yet, at the same time, a lot has not Hmm. happened. Um, We'll give a little bit of background now, I think, about, especially for those of you who aren't in the UK, about what now will happen um, legally and politically. Um, there's, if you, if you haven't read much about the specifics, um, I know we're preaching to the choir here for the most part, but, um, the UK government now is supposed to invoke article 50, which is, um, the EU's, um, article within the EU treaty that tells the EU that a member state is going to, Exit yes, and the there's, union. There's a two-year time frame from where, from the moment when Article Fifty is invoked. The, the member state has two years to extricate itself from from the European Union. And the idea is that there's negotiations that will go on about yeah. um, redefining and um, renegotiating the economic relationships, the political relationships, mm. the kind of military relationships between the former member state and the rest of the union. Yeah. Um, yes. So that's, there's been a lot of discussion because, of course, Article 50 has not yet been invoked. No. So the morning after the referendum, um, British Prime Minister David Cameron announced that he was going to resign. Uh, he hasn't set a specific time frame, but um, uh, the, the general feeling is that by October uh, he will have gone and there will be a new leader of the Conservative Party, who will then become Prime Minister by virtue of being the leader of the Conservative Party. And it will be up to that new leader, whoever he or she is, to decide when and how to invoke Article 50. Um, And then that person will also be in charge of negotiating with the EU. Um, There are some regional differences or national differences, depending on your particular point of view. So um, Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted fairly strongly to remain. Um, All of this happened in the context of 
a separate Scottish National Independence Referendum, which happened a couple of years ago. We spoke about that last week. Yes. So if you haven't listened to our episode last week, Again, there's a lot of information yes. there. And uh, we will do future episodes on this almost certainly because, as we speak, we don't know what's going to happen, but chances are there's, there's going to be further developments in the Scottish independence question. Um, Northern Ireland, as you probably know, is uh, a very complicated, difficult context, and a lot of the peace process that has happened over the last couple of decades um, is now under threat because a lot of it was based on a particular formulation to do with Britain's relationship with the EU and the Republic of Ireland's relationship with the EU. So all of that is up in there. Um, we don't have a a prime minister really. Um, or, or at best, we have a lame duck prime minister. The main opposition party, Labour, is tearing itself apart. As of this morning, reports suggest half of the Labour cabinet, Labour shadow cabinet, will resign. Um, yes, uh, we're living in historic times. Yes, we are. There's, I mean, there's not, there's not really a precedent. Um, no one really knows what's happening. The EU, um, a lot of people are asking about and discussing what the EU's position is and what it will be. Um, generally, the the leaders of the EU, the, the kind of elite in the EU, yeah. have um, made a, a public position yeah. clear, which is yeah. that the Un- United Kingdom needs to invoke Article 50 as soon as possible and begin the negotiations now. And they've said that that is because the EU's economy is yes. under threat because yes. um, we're not economists, but we do know that um, political and social instability leads um, to shy investors. Yes. Um, and it it's threatening the single market, according and, to EU leaders. And it's, I mean, you know, on a, on a related but slightly separate note, um, depending on which newspaper reports you follow, uh, £1.2 trillion was wiped off the share market in the immediate aftermath of the referendum decision. The pound is at its lowest since 1985, and the the, the crash was the the sharpest in living memory, probably. Um, So the economic effects have already started to be felt within Britain, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. So there are predictions of house price price crash. Uh, if the pound continues to fall, then inflation will rise fairly sharply. Um, unemployment. Unemployment will rise. Um, and beyond that, no one really knows. And of course, there, there are knock-on effects. You know, as, as much as I think the EU, and we'll talk about this in a bit, um, or as much as the UK um, kind of leave rhetoric has been focused on on Britain going it alone and and Britain as as its own um, island that can manage its own affairs. Of course, that is not the economic context that any of us live in, Mm. and so the rest of the world is feeling Mm. um, economic effects of this outcome. And there's, um, you know, the BBC had a kind of a more um, pro-leave um, speaker on yesterday who was saying the pound didn't actually fall to its lowest mm. level, and you know, this is, so there's still this kind of um, these 
leave positions yeah. floating around that yeah. are um, muddying yeah. the kind of economic narrative. Yeah. Um, definitely. And of course, the economic narrative was always one of the more, most important narratives in the lead up to the referendum as well. Uh, and we'll speak much more about that in, in a second, about the, the, the way the different vote share for both sides maps onto particular economic contexts. I think one of the questions that we that we as um, progressives keep asking ourselves, and it's a question that we've we've asked ourselves um, for years, but it's become more interesting: is what is the point of UKIP yes. now? UK, the UK Independence Party yes. has ostensibly achieved its goal. Um, I'm sure we would we would like to see Nigel yeah. Farage right off into the German sunset with yeah. his German wife um, and and leave us be for a while. Yeah. But, um, you know, UKIP's position here has been really interesting. Yes, I mean, I think um, for our North American listeners, uh, you might make a comparison. It's not an, not an exact comparison, but you might make a comparison between UKIP and the Tea Party movement. Uh in the sense that there is a mainstream conservative political entity, the Conservative Party in Britain, the Republican Party in America, and there is a splinter group that is to the or a group that started off as a splinter group to the right of that mainstream conservative uh, party, and that's the Tea Party in, in America and uh, the UK UK Independence Party in Britain, and the relationship between the mainstream conservative and the far right conservative. Uh, parties are quite similar in in both contexts. So, um, the, for for many years, the mainstream conservative party, instead of attacking or fighting the the far right splinter group, has tried to um, appease it, tried to pander to its concerns, and in the process has been sort of taken up by it, has been sort of engulfed by by this this monster that started off as a as a splinter. Um, and it's it's interesting. I think you know. There's the kind of there's the appeasement aspect of it, but there's also the kind of utilizing some of the rhetoric for yes. its own gain. Yes. So I think one of the things we'll talk about, um, and we'll come back to this, is the Conservative Party's use of UKIP concerns, like UKIP rhetoric around immigration in particular, mm. in order to justify or create a narrative for its austerity yes. program. Yes. We've talked about austerity a lot yes. on our podcast, yes. specifically with the, the budget and yes. the sugar tax and yes. um, and the academy's question. Yes. Um, and there's only so much kind of use that yeah. a neoliberal conservative party can get out of anti-immigration rhetoric yes. before it catches fire yeah. in a sense. And, We'll talk about the context of that a bit more. I mean, I mean, I, I think now is as good a time as any to 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 focus uh, very closely, more closely on uh, on austerity. As and I think you were making the point earlier on before we started that one of the things that austerity has done is is made the country ungovernable. Um, and I think that that's that's very very well put. If you look at the the data, the voting uh, data, as as it came out across the regions, it is not exactly true, or not not wholly true, that uh, 
areas of multiple deprivation were more likely to vote leave. But it is generally true. There are some places where uh, more affluent areas which also voted to leave. But the the most striking leave votes came from the northeast of England, Wales, specifically South Wales, um, the areas outside London, Essex, uh, principally. Uh, and all of these areas are marked by a higher levels of deprivation than, than average, and actually be lower levels of immigration than on average. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the relationship with immigration in a second. Um, but the, the relationship between deprivation and conservatism, or conservatism in, in this form, seems to have been, been developed over, over many, many years before the current regime of austerity, where uh, the process of deindustrialization that has occurred across all of these areas has led to uh, a group of people who at one point were very secure in their working class identity. Uh, that's not to say their life was amazing and easy or anything like that, but they had tough jobs which were generally secure. They knew their their place in the world, they knew where they belonged, uh, and they knew what... They also had had political organizations yes. in place to advocate for yes. them, so the yes. trade unions, the trade unions um, Labour Party. had worked, um, you know, many people felt on behalf of them. Yes. Yeah, I mean the trade union, the the absence of generally of trade union voice in this in the referendum debate has been marked. You know, trade unions Congress has had speakers. Francis O'Grady, um, representing the TUC, was part of some of the debates. But generally speaking, the trade unions were pretty much absent from this whole debate, and that speaks to this years of deliberate denigration and marginalization of the working class, the destruction of the working class ways of life, uh, removal of jobs, removal of any kind of value that we might give, a social, cultural value to working class lives, uh, to the point where post-Thatcher and post-Reagan in America, again, the parallels are very similar, um, the only option that seemed to be open to working class lives was to no longer be working class. John Harris, in a, in a Guardian article, which we'll a link to in the comments in the in the description uh, makes this point where the the aspirational rhetoric by its very nature devalues working class lives and in the context of all of that then the UKIP and the far right responses your life lives have been messed up in all of these many many ways and the reason for that is immigration um, and that is what leads to this. Yes. It's uh, the the history of anti-immigration sentiment in the UK is is very old. Yeah. Um it goes back you know th in terms that we recognize now it goes back to the decolonization period and then the the early years after um the empire disintegrated um Transition is probably a, a better word, and um, large numbers of people who were formerly colonized subjects but who had become independent were moving 
to the UK. Um, and then you start to see a, a rise in, in um, anti-immigration rhetoric and discourse yeah. being mobilized yeah. on the part of um, elites trying to win votes. Yeah. Gary Young, um, who writes for The Guardian, um, especially writes especially eloquently on race, but he, he writes on other topics yeah. as well, um, wrote a few weeks ago before the referendum that um, the history of anti-immigration rhetoric in the UK goes back decades and the working class electorate has been unable to express its opinion on immigration in any meaningful way. Um, And he talks about how from the 1960s, really, the Labour Party generally saw immigration as being an issue on which they would lose votes and the Conservative Party saw immigration as an issue on which they would win votes. And so um, there begins a a tenuous relationship that the Conservative Party has with using anti-immigration rhetoric to win votes. And then at the same time, you know, as as a kind of arm of a neoliberal state, the Conservative Party needs immigration because, of course, the, you know, a globalized economy requires the movement of labor. The labor force has to be mobile in order to facilitate a global economy. And so the Conservative Party for decades has been riding this line and the Labor Party has followed suit. But of course, the Labor Party stands for something, something different. Their votes are very much working class votes. Um, but in the 1990s, this broke down, and so the Labour Party has found itself unable mm. to recapture a lot mm. of these votes. And you know, we saw last year much of the working class in the north, east, and northwest yes. of England yeah. went voted for UKIP, yeah. Yeah. and that was an attempt, I think, on their part to to express anger with the establishment. Yes. And we, as the liberal left, you know, the the kind of elite mm. liberal left, found that abhorrent. Mm. But without having, you know, you and I don't work in politics. Mm. And, you know, as expert academic opinions, you know, our voices are are of less value now than I think they've ever been. Um, And so there's this this inability on the part of the the left in Westminster to deal effectively with that. I think there are a couple of points I'd like to make um, in response to that. One is that you mentioned us as expert academic opinions and and I think there is a a very serious and very troubling uh, I'd like to say rise but actually this has been part of a British way of life for for a long time which is this pronounced anti-intellectualism. Michael There's there's connections here with the American case as well so it is important that we highlight that. Uh, Michael Gove, who was one of the leaders of the Leave movement, uh, infamously in a in a TV uh, debate um, a couple of weeks before the referendum, said Britain has had enough of listening to experts, and that kind of post-factual anti-intellectual suspicion of any kind of opinion that presents itself as expert and therefore elite characterizes much of the Trump movement as well, um, which prides itself on being not non-expert, which prides itself on being non-intellectual. Uh, and this has its roots in a, in a kind of far-right fascist movement for, uh, for a long, long time. You know, uh, fascism in Germany, fascism in Italy, fascism in Spain in the, in the early part of the 20th century, 
was characterized by a, a kind of defiant, pride, proud anti-intellectualism. And that, that is a marked similarity in the, in the Leave movement and the country as a whole. At the moment, the, the, the one of the ways in which it, it affects the, the immigration debate specifically is that you're completely right. Because Labour has historically felt that immigration was going to be a losing issue for it and only started tackling it at a point when the debate had gone so far to the right that it was no, there was no real way to bring it back, back to the left to the point where it is now not possible in in any reasonable way to point out the prejudice that is inherent in, in anti-immigration. Anti-immigration in Britain is no longer seen as a prejudiced position. It is seen as a reasonable position to have, whether we agree with it or not. And it is linked to economics. Yes. It's linked to... so. So uh, having an anti-immigration position is linked to an economic position, yes. not a race position. Yes. Um, so uh, in the 2010 general elections, when the Conservatives, when the Conservatives won, won uh, in coalition with, with, the, the, with the Liberal Democrats, uh, the Labour election was being fought by Gordon Brown at the time, who was Prime Minister. And there was this infamous moment which became known as Bigot Gate, where uh, an older woman from a working class background, in a conversation with Gordon Brown, asked him, where are all these Eastern Europeans flocking from? Gordon Brown dealt with the question as best as he could, got into the car, didn't realise his mic was still on, and described the woman as a bigot. And he then had to go and apologise because that was seen to be an elite out-of-touch position. I think we would we would both contend that that woman was being bigoted. He could have called her so many awful things. Yes. But he he said that she was a bigot, yes. which it, you know, it's it's I do remember when this happened and yes. I had just moved to the UK, so yes. I was less yes. um entrenched in British politics. Um but it has always struck me as interesting that even on the left now there's elite left commentators who are saying that being that that having an anti-immigration stance is to have a genuine and legitimate concern that immigrants are lowering wages that immigrants are um taking up jobs and taking places at university away from from british citizens um there's a very interesting vox article that was just published I think today, maybe last night, um, that does a fairly decent summary mm. of some of the best studies that have been done by academics. So, of course, mm. we must must um, you know deal with the fact that the experts are speaking from their yeah. um, elite, out of touch position on yes. this. Yes. But th- that immigration does not significantly lower wages. Mm. Immigration does not deny British citizens jobs. Fundamentally. And I think, you know, my my one sentence description of why this referendum yeah. went the way that it did is because of austerity. Yeah. This was a vote against austerity. Yeah. But the Labour Party yeah. and the Remain campaign yeah. generally, of course, could not say that because yeah. David Cameron was leading the Remain campaign. Yeah. He couldn't say it's not immigrants from the EU that are causing your economic instability. It's our own government's policies. Yeah that we've instated yes. 
they can't say that. Yes. So they they were unable to yes. say the truth. Yes. Um, it's really interesting that uh, certainly my Facebook feed, and I think, think from conversation yours as well, has been marked by, on the one hand, a lot of grief and anguish and anger which we share and feel. But on the other, there's, there's also a reaction to that um, where people are saying it is not helpful to label all leave voters as racists and you know we have to come together and we have to have to find a way of uniting after this referendum and you can absolutely see where it's coming from and you know labeling any group of people as one thing is not particularly helpful but it is true and it has to be recognized that the the concerns about the effects a leave vote would have on non-British citizens living and working in Britain was not a surprise. It was commented on, discussed before the referendum in various mainstream and alternative media sources. So you have to accept that the people who voted Leave felt that their vision of the country, their vision of what was best for the country, was considered by them to be more important than the welfare of non-British citizens, and actually also British citizens of ethnic minorities. Because we've already seen since since Friday a marked, this is anecdotal at the moment, we don't have figures, but a marked rise in racist attacks which are targeting both British citizens and non-British citizens. Uh, it isn't always easy for a racist to be able to tell who is a British citizen and who isn't. So we can have this discussion about how best to go forward together as a country, assuming the country stays together, which is certainly by no means guaranteed at the moment. But we have to recognize that for a large section of the country, it is now acceptable to put the welfare of them and the country that they want to see at a higher value than the value of those people who are from another country and who live and work here. That fact has to be recognized and we have to, we the progressive liberal left, have to find a way of challenging the the basic premise of that opinion rather than acknowledging its, its legitimacy. Yeah, I think, you know, having been raised, I think, in a kind of a liberal um, Bay Area context, you know, you're sort of taught that um, debate and multiple opinion, you know, everyone's entitled to an opinion and that debate is a, um, a good thing. You know, at a certain level, yes, yes. that's absolutely yeah. true. You know, you and I disagree all the time and I think yes. our disagreements make it so that we understand things yes. better after yes. we argue. Yes. But at a certain point where evidence is completely disregarded... Mm data and empirical observation are completely disregarded yes. and myths and stories and narratives that aren't based in evidence for example yeah. some of the the statistics that the leave campaign wheeled out yeah. um quite literally on the side of a bus yes um aren't in fact based in any sort of reality that any of us share at that point opinions are not all equal. No. And this is this is something that we struggle with yes. as academics. Yes. But you know, teaching teaching a balanced lecture lecture or, or having a balanced podcast episode, you know, at, 
at a certain point when the facts don't match up, you you know, we have to draw distinctions. Yes. And and you know that that speaks to uh, speaks to a failure on our part as well. So if the issues really are as clear as we think they are, if the facts are so clearly on one side as we see them, then how come we maybe I shouldn't say we, I personally, was so incompetent at trying to persuade anyone who wanted to vote leave to change their mind. And one of the reasons is, you know, with with a couple, couple of sort of isolated exceptions, older generations of family and so on, I don't know of anyone who was going to vote leave or who told me they were going to vote leave. And, you know, okay, I live in a part of the country which voted 62% to to remain, but that still leaves a 38% significant minority who decided they were going to vote leave. I don't know them. I've never spoken to them. And to me, that is just as much of a danger as anything that might happen, which is that the country has been so polarized for so long that all of us live in our individual bubbles where we only ever interact with people who are like us, who we agree with. Uh, we only ever interact with people from similar socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, you know, I was thinking the other day, how many people do I know who I would genuinely say come from a different class background to my own? I don't think there are many. And I don't think I'm all that distinctive compared to the rest of Britain. And I don't even begin to know how one challenges that because this 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 polarization is so all pervasive. It's interesting. I mean, I think the 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 polarization was so clear in this vote. Mm. I mean, if you look at maps of yes. the results and the statistics geographically, generationally, um, class wise there were such clear distinctions between leave and remain voters in this case. Um, but, I mean, elections, you know, general and the Scottish referendum, I mean, Glasgow and the surrounding areas of Glasgow voted, you know, many, many people for the first time yes. voting yes. for Scottish independence. Yes. So there is... I think very clearly these regional geographic yes. distinctions, class distinctions, um, that are so so obvious yeah. um, to us, yes. and and national distinctions as well. You know, so Scotland and, and England seems to be even in the four and a bit years that I've lived been living in Scotland now, seems to have been diverging in a very in a steady but palpable way. Scotland and England are now very, very different places. That's not to say that everyone in, in, in England voted leave or that they are not resistance movements in England at the moment. They are. But Scotland does seem to be a more generally inclusive pro-immigration, pro-EU space than England is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the numbers on inequality in Scotland, um, but it's a it, it, Scotland has a very fascinating set of inequalities, yes. particularly 
um, around Glasgow and the rest of yes. the central belt, and yeah. particularly in the highlands and islands areas. And Scotland's statistics, certainly I know with health inequalities, look very, very different from pretty much any other part of Europe. Except, why is it that... I mean, you know, Scotland has some of the most deprived areas in Britain. In Europe, in Europe. even. But those areas did not follow the very... the, the similarly, in some ways, deprived areas in northeast England and Wales which voted markedly to leave. That is not something that can be easily explained. You know, why is it that Scottish farmers and fishermen who whose relationship to the EU is not all that different from Welsh communities where the only significant investment in decades has been EU investment. If, you know, I know Wales fairly well. If you go to Wales, if you go to South Wales, there are whole roads being built, which is which has you know uh, information boarding boards with the EU logo on it. They're, Wales is one of the very few parts of Britain where the net transfer of money is positive. More more EU money enters Wales than leaves. And Wales still voted to leave. And I think unless we can begin to explain, understand the level of resentment, that means that you know you can put you can put money in, you can try to compensate for inequality, but that doesn't mean you are connected with the people. That doesn't mean the people don't feel alienated. I wonder how much of this um, has had to do with Scottish devolution because the a friend of mine um, who's, who's quite knowledgeable about the EU, um, has worked for the EU, said, um, you know, this it really begs the question, what's been happening in Northern England? Because if, if Remain can convince Scottish fishermen in Orkney and Shetland to vote Remain, then what's going on? Because historically, Shetland and Orkney and the Outer Hebrides um, have had huge resentment towards the EU. And there were, I mean, these were, were regions that voted, um, that the margin was smaller, more people did vote to leave in these parts of, of Scotland. And yet, overall enough people voted remain that it it was quite different and i wonder how much of it has to do with the scottish government i think, I think scottish devolution is when compared to northern england is absolutely a, a, a key point so scotland even the more marginalized parts of scotland feel less alienated because they have they have a stake in a scottish government in the way northern england doesn't have a stake in a northern england government doesn't explain Wales though. What does Wales? How is Wales's devolution arrangement different from it, Scotland? It is not as not as devolved. So it's a Welsh assembly. It's a Scottish Parliament. It has it has fewer powers. It has fewer less control over health and education. So, uh, well, it has more control over health, uh, but it has less control over education. Um, so. Um, Yes, it's it's generally, it has less powers, it has fewer powers. 
it is not that the the even though the Scottish ref, the Scottish referendum um, was did did not pass did not lead to independence. I think it it managed to uh, mobilize the population more generally in the sense that it gave them something to to be a part of. And, of course, we saw last year in the elections, the SNP took a huge number of seats in Westminster. And so Scottish people are now seeing their MPs, many of whom are, you know, very young, you know, rooted in the communities that they ran for. Uh, You know, Scottish people, I think, feel represented in a way that... the, The way I think of it is that if you think of Scottish and Welsh nationalism... The, it, it, the, they are at very different stages. So Scotland thinks of itself as a nation. Scottish nationalism has achieved that, that the nationhood is now unquestioned. In this, in the Benedict Anderson sense yes. of the imagined yes. community. What is left is state building. So Scotland, the independence process, if if we, you know, if we support Scottish independence, which I think we do, what is left in that road to independence is state building. For Wales, there is still a nation building project going on. And of course, if you don't, in the same way, there isn't a nation building process in Northern England. You know, English nationhood is very, very different to Scottish nationhood or Welsh nationhood. And there is much less space in that English nationhood for Northern England. But because Welsh nationhood hasn't yet been established, I don't think, people are more alienated. They have less to belong to. Um, and I think a, a large part of the the way in which the various regions, the various classes, the various generations voted comes down to narratives of identity, which are ephemeral and hard to argue with and hard to establish and hard to challenge. So it was never going to be enough to say you know, you are wrong when you say immigration is bad for the country, or you are wrong when you say that uh, leaving the EU would harm the economy or harm the market, so you are wrong when you say that um, it is good for, it is, you know, that we can trade with, with other countries outside the EU. All of those things was never going to work compared with the much more simpler, cleaner leave message, which was take back control take back control of your country. How can you argue against that? You can't really. It means nothing. But that's exactly why. That's exactly why. If it means nothing when it's said by politicians, the electorate can then fill it with meaning, whatever meaning it is that they want. And again, it's it's, it's sort of, it's Trump and making America great again. You know, it's this, it's uh, this deeply conservative, uh, nostalgic longing for a time when being white and British or being white and American was valued over and above everything else. And those the twinning of racial and national identity, racial race and citizenship is important. That those two there there is a sense that those two versions of your identity mattered. And of course that's not true. They didn't matter as much even going back. What mattered was that you had a secure working class identity. 
that is what is lost. You know, you still have privileges by virtue of being white and by virtue of being the citizen of Britain or America. But That's... you tell that to someone who whose grandchildren have exactly. been unable to find a job exactly. and are now twenty five. Because and what has at what home. has been what has been lost is working class identity. That is that is that is the problem. Um, but of course, that's not an argument that could be had, was had. Well, because the the Conservative Party and Labour through the nineties and early two thousands were the res- were responsible yes. for that. I mean, yes. it was it is it is you know neoliberalism of the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties that has driven the destruction of the. The kind of day-to-day working class lifestyle and therefore the working class identity. And so, you know, when the Remain campaign gets up and says, you need to follow us now. Yes. The working class says, why? Yes. Yes. You know, you have never thought to include us in anything. And you have not done anything that has made a significant improvement to our lives. Really. Ever. So why should we? Why should we want to stay in the EU when, as far as we can see, the only benefits of staying in the EU are benefits that you will get, you being the liberal elite metropolitan? You know, there's a there's an urban-rural divide here as well, with, even within England. You know, all with, with the interesting exception of Birmingham, all the major English cities, London, Manchester... Newcastle very narrowly, but yes, Bristol, Oxford, Cambridge, all voted to to remain. Um, so there's a, a rural-urban elite uh, division here as well, which is probably also not unlike the conservative movement in America. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. I mean, the you know, the U.S. maps, of course, the middle is red and the coasts yes. are blue. Yes. Uh, swing states dotted here and there yes. throughout. That's generally the the makeup, and of course, most of the kind of very powerful financial centers um, and tech centers in the United States are on the coasts. Um, plus, of course, you throw in the entertainment industry, Hollywood in LA. Um, so it is it is very similar demographically. You know, there there are also similarities. Um, the United States, of course, is is different, um, and so we don't want to. We don't want to make it seem like it's completely the same, but in terms of, of migration and immigrant communities and diaspora communities in the United States, similarly, um, urban areas yes. and um, kind of fast-growing yeah. industrial areas are where yeah. migrants go. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is a sort of um, rural backlash mm-hmm. in a sense against neoliberalism's preference for the city yeah. um, you know neoliberalism enjoys having its labor forces in all in one place in urban centers where it can sell yeah. goods and services in a yeah. in a local environment you know that is it's how the economic system yeah. works um, you know this is a in a sense this is a rejection of of unchecked neoliberalism yes. um, and how neoliberalism le- has left, especially in the last kind of eight or nine years, yes. has left a lot of people behind. But it's 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 a reaction to neoliberalism that will end up benefiting 
the neoliberal elite. Exactly. Um, so you know, I think John Harris said this is a it was a working class revolt, but it's not a working class victory, um, which is uh, which is very true. Yeah. Um, I mean, the people who yes. voted leave will suffer the most, yes. and it's. Diff- I think I find it the most difficult. I think being an academic and and having the kinds of academic friends yes. that I do, we we recognize and also you know really value yeah. our elite positions, yeah. but at the same time, yeah. we are always constantly at work trying to. We're campaigning for low tuition fees and for scholarships. So we're we're campaigning for more diverse university campuses. We're campaigning um, for greater access to education. We're yeah. campaigning against um, you know legislation like the academy legislation and it's just yes but for all our campaigning we have not been able to significantly reduce the distance no between us and them no you know, the, the them that voted the, the alienated the disaffected the people who've been messed around with for years and years and years and who've been told and shown for years and years and years that their vote doesn't count, that they don't have a say. We haven't been able to reduce the distance between us and them. And, you know, they are not the only Leave voters, I know. You know, plenty of affluent people voted Leave as well, but the affluent who voted Leave are not going to suffer as much as a result. The working class who voted Leave are going to be the first to suffer. It's, yeah... And it's it's difficult because, of course, I know that most of those people want you and me out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the cultural theorist Stuart Hall and his uh, very famous line about words being evacuated of meaning. Throughout it all, the because the 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 campaign was not fought on the grounds that it should have done should have been done. It was the the words used in the campaign ceased to have any meaning. You know, we we talk, spoke about Michael Gove saying witness had had enough of experts. You know, taking back control. Um, Nigel Farage, the leader of the UKIP party, when he claimed victory after the referendum, claimed victory on behalf of ordinary decent people. You know, what do these words mean? These words have no meaning, really. And because they have no meaning, they can be filled up with, as you said, with whatever anyone wants. So when Farage describes a voter as ordinary and decent, he's clearly not talking about us. He's not talking about the elite. He's not talking about left-wingers. He's not talking about non-white people. He's not talking about non-British people. Um, They can never be ordinary and decent. That's a happy note to end on. A joyful note to end on. Yeah, so, I mean, we, you know, don't we, we shouldn't really apologise for being sad that the world that we find is today is a very different place from the, the world that existed three or four days ago, and these differences are real, and people's lives, most people's lives will be much, much worse. Um, the The new... The new regime might not like us, but we still have enough privilege that we'll probably be okay. Um, and if we find ourselves in a position where we aren't, we yes. we are able to move. Yes. Um, so, you know, we'll all be fine, but um, most of the country will not be.
Thanks for listening. Um, let us know what you think and um, you know, tweet at us, um, comment on Facebook and, and iTunes and um, we will be back next week. Talking for, about guns? Yes, yeah, so probably not, not much happier, but we will be talking about guns next week. Um, see you next week then. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?